You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because we've spent this long on all this, so why stop now? I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 68, Popor V. Because V is five in Roman numerals. <laughs> Welcome back. By the time that you he- are listening to this, it will be 2022. So happy new year, everybody. And all the best for a better one, we'll say. Yeah. 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 We all just got real quiet there. Well, I'm trying not to yeah. say anything that might jinx the entire world. No, you know? like... no we're just going to stay We're gonna stay real quiet. Does no one make any sudden movements? <laughs> Just don't spook it. Come in. Don't spook it. Quietly. <laughs> you, you've seen the thing of like, nobody say 2022 is going to be my year. We're not no, doing that. No. We're going to just sneak that. in like we're coming in the back door and not wanting to wake anybody up. And I, you <laughs> no know, one's year. Speaking of like world building, whatever you in your family and, you know, where you're from, whatever you do for like those good New Year's vibes, I hope you did them. The eating the grapes at midnight or the wearing red underwear or whatever. I will eat some black eyed peas, even though I do not enjoy them. Yeah, you choke those down. I will. I will. Kind of southern girl doesn't enjoy her black eyed peas. I don't like most bean type things because they're weird in texture. And it's, it's, this is a me thing. I understand that. I understand I'm wrong. I just don't enjoy them. <laughs> No, there's nothing wrong about not enjoying the things you don't enjoy. I am all for people. Love the things you love. Let people like things. Let people not like things. That's, that's, I, I am embracing this, this new year with, with that sort of love and grace for all people. But Unless we'll it's see. world building. And then you Unless better love world it. Building. Yeah. And then you better love it and you better do it <laughs> till it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, speaking of, we have a fantastic slate of listener questions for this our 68th episode and i feel like in the past we've round robin these and that has gone pretty well so Cass, do you want to take first stab at i will i will i'm gonna kick things off by um choosing the question that harkens back to the world con that marshall and i were recently at and looks forward this is a good january thing both looking back and forward at the same time. So this, these, I'm sort of combining a couple of questions from Noah. And he has asked, what was the best panel we attended at Worldcon? And how can the listeners make sure that we're nominated for next year's Hugos? <laughs> Ooh, and I am curious, too, to hear what panels were fantastic at Worldcon. Also very jealous, but very curious as well. So I feel like I was on some really great ones. Um Two of the ones I was on were really, really exciting. And one was called Fandom Factions. And it was a great conversation about sort of just like fandom social dynamics and how they've changed over the years, how they've changed in different iterations of the internet. We had a great conversation, which has been relevant even in the just couple of weeks since we had this conversation about the difference between like responsible critique within fandom versus vicious dogpiling within fandom and how something that begins as one can mutate into the other because of the way the internet works. So that was 
that was a really robust conversation and i really enjoyed the people i got to to chat with on that one i i actually almost feel bad because i'm terrible about like going to panels beyond the ones that i'm in and i was only on one that was a real person panel and i i will just politely say that one didn't go great and i will i will leave it at that but i did have a lot of really just good like in-person conversations with a lot of people who some of whom you know i've met plenty of times before some i've met for the first time and so i mean it, it's always for me just this wonderfully illuminating time just to be around the brilliant smart people in this community and hear from them and hear their ideas of what we're doing and what we should be doing and what's you know what's coming next similar to like why we're doing this podcast in the first place is it gives us this great excuse to a talk to each other i love getting to talk to the two of you about smart things about world building and then bring in brilliant fun writers that we know and love and hear their thoughts and pick their brains and it's just great i mean it was just wonderful just to be around that again i got to so not so much panels for me but i got to hear wonderful conversations with with people like uh, friends of the podcast Fonda Lee or Sarah Guan, um, some new people that I just met for the first time like uh, Usman Malik or uh, Elili Yu and it was just great 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 all around yeah I had a similar I, I only made it to a couple of panels that weren't the ones I was on which I felt bad about but like well one of the ones I was going to go to happened during Hugo rehearsal that then got rescheduled because the room was quite literally on fire <laughs> <laughs> little fire small small electrical fire more so more there were some surprises fire, in the day but but, but but where there is smoke there, there was there in fact fire. a fire <laughs> but i also just i mean i had so many great just conversations with people it's why i love conferences and conventions and you know would go to one every month if i could in healthy travel times yeah that's that's the best i just i love getting to talk to people and and share our brains obviously we want a really good excuse to go yes. to WorldCon in Chicago in 2022. So, so if you're wondering, yes, if you're wondering how can you make sure we get nominated again, we would love that. We would be very happy with that. Is you need to have either had a voting membership for this WorldCon, and that allows you to nominate for next year. And if you didn't do that, you need to then get either an attending or supporting membership for Chicago Worldcon 2022, which you need to get by January 31st. They actually just extended what that date is. So it used to be, if you were listening to this now, it would have been too late, but it's not too late. You can, in fact, <laughs> now get that Limited membership. Limited time offer, and, this year only. Yeah, now, now it's extended to January 31st, and so if you get your membership by then, you will be eligible to nominate and then vote. But if you already have a member had a membership for the past one, then you're also eligible to nominate. And so if you nominated us before or didn't and now have discovered us and think that we are wonderful and worthy, we would love your nomination again. It would make us very happy. I'll throw in there too. This is something that I did not know as a sci-fi fantasy dork for a very long time, which is that I thought, well, what's the point of getting a membership for Worldcon? I can't go. And voting is maybe like, uh, that's not important enough to me to spend the money. I didn't realize that you get basically all of the nominated materials as part of your membership. So if you think about that, that's five novels, five novellas, five short stories, you get series. I got entire series this year 
I know you don't always get all the series, but like it's it is so worth it as if you think about the value of all of those books and all those materials, I mean it more than pays for itself. Um in stuff you get to read for the yeah. cost of supporting membership. I loved getting especially the packets with like the short stories and things that get published in magazines that I don't necessarily subscribe to. They can be hard to find. So like that was so cool was having that packaged right there for us. And that's with any supporting membership, you get those. I will also um, make sure that I put links to these things in the show notes for this episode, because I know it can be a little confusing. The like, if you had this membership in this year, or if you are getting it for this year, like that's, it's a little, I can't always bend my brain around it correctly, but I will make sure that we have, we have good explanations and links in, in the show notes for this episode. You know, admittedly, it's kind of like the Worldcon membership statuses and all of the other rules were created by people who really enjoy world building because they are complex and reflect long traditions that many of us do, do not remember any longer. I think you might be onto something with that. These are essentially our people, and they were the people who were our people. I mean, some of these rules date back to the, to the 40s, and they, are, they're, they remained our people all this time. Yes. Our people have always been here. <laughs> it is like those rituals it's like we no longer know why we do this thing but we keep doing it because that is how it has it. been done and it might anger the elder gods if we changed it <laughs> i'm a big fan of changing things when they're not as efficient they as they no could sense. be just just throwing that out there yes. but yeah anytime anytime that the answer is because we didn't have the internet then it's probably yeah. a good time to like yeah reevaluate because postage yeah. was expensive well marshall how about you question for the the group all right, from Richard Willie, who is Wombative on Twitter, has two questions. First, just Magna Core or Tootsie Roll Setter. And then, are fjords really necessary or just ostentatious nonsense? Um, I'm going to start with the latter, in which they are ostentatious nonsense, and your world building should be filled with ostentatious <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> like, you absolutely need, I mean, I mean, Saudi Bartfast won an award for his fjords when he built the earth, so I think that's, that's proof that that's exactly the sort of thing you should be doing. You should have, like, your worlds should have like things like um the victoria falls or the grand canyon or just these things that people will just wander upon like oh my god look at that gorgeous thing in front of us and that has nothing to do with plot unless you make it have something to do with plot but it doesn't matter because worlds should be filled with wonder that aren't necessarily anything to do with story or character or plot but just the sheer wonder of i i walked out the door and look at this it's amazing I would also say that your world should be filled with small annoyances. Like, we mm. can't build a road here because these damned fjords keep cutting into the landscape and there's this water all over the place. Like, it goes both ways, I feel. We have those problems with the peninsulas in Virginia and North Carolina. There's a reason that I-95 is like 200 miles inland. It's because there's too many fucking waterways in the way if you go further east. But then that can be like a fun thing to include of why, why is this this way? And it's because of that. Like, I feel like a lot of interesting natural phenomenon are like that, right? Like, you, you can build a world that's just a big flat plane. And I guess that you can set a story in a big flat plane. And, and that's been done effectively, for sure. But the real world's not like that. It's full of all kinds of beautiful and annoying things that humans get to wonder at and then go, oh, crap, now what do we do with it? What a beautiful vista full of mountains. 
oh shit, we need to be on the other side. How are we going to deal with that? You know, and (laughs) I think that that's, it's not only, you know, beautiful and annoying and everything else. It's, it's realistic too, that the world is dappled with all kinds of landscapes that you can go play in. Which is also a fun way to have things be the way they are and where they are. I, I, I always think about if you've ever been to Denver, it's, I mean, it's, awe-inspiring just the sheer like you're standing there and then there's just the wall of mountain right there and it's gorgeous and it's amazing and you can totally tell why settlers heading west looked at that and said yeah here's good this is far <laughs> enough this is good i'm good here this is far enough yep. we do not need to go past that that's fine yeah though so i would i would kick in too that it does hit a point with your world building that you don't have to include every single nuance or potential in the environment. If you've already built a beautifully rich world and you're like 500 miles away from any water that exists in your world, you don't have to build the fjords just because you can. At that point, perhaps it is ostentatious nonsense and you can put a pin in it and that's that's okay. You're allowed, but you're also allowed to go big and grand and a little stupid. So follow your bliss. I mean, with your world building, you can also sort of use that sort of Coco Chanel rule of like, you know, spin in front of the mirror and whichever stands out, take that item off. Like it can be like those fjords are just that one thing too many in in this story. And maybe I need to just, you know, pull that away. When the fjords become your tacky earrings, it's time to move on. And magma core or Tootsie Roll Center. I, I kind of love this because it is a, it is a silly question, but at the same time, it it actually gets to the heart of something fundamental and basic about what decisions you're going to make in your world building. Like, are you going to make something that is, you know, even, no matter how mystical or magical or fantastical it is, is there still some sort of science core at the bottom? Like, do you still have a magma core at the center of the earth that generates magnetic field or also maybe generates a magical field? Who even knows? Or is it something just pure nonsense and you just embrace that nonsense? And that can be, and that can be a beautiful thing too. Um, I am always one who likes to lean towards the more scientific thing, but I mean, I, I think there is something really beautiful if you just fully embrace, yeah, it's, you know, it's a Tootsie Roll at the center and that's, that's what powers the world. I think the genre on the whole has has sort of moved in that direction over the last couple of decades to really having a a cohesive sense of possibility, like this world could actually exist. It follows laws of physics that we recognize and things like that. But on the other hand, I freaking love Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth. I I kind of want a, a world that might have dinosaurs inside it. Who knows? Like that that seems fun. <laughs> that. There's a truly awful like 1950s movie called Mole People. And it starts off with this like faux professor. He may actually be a real professor. I don't know. But he's talking about all the different like theories for what was inside the earth at some point. And it's like, actually, some of these are kind of bonkers awesome. Like, like maybe there's a world inside the world and it just goes down like layers of onions. Or maybe it's actually a cone and we're projected onto the world. Or maybe we're actually on the inside looking out and it's like, if you go down and down and deeper into the, you know, past of of what kinds of crap we believed, there's there's this element of knowability to it, right? Just because we know now what happens if you drill down into the center of the earth doesn't mean that the people in your world have to know those things. And they can have these fantastical ideas. And hey, maybe they can be true. Along those lines, I kind of love when people nowadays are doing a sort of like version of science fiction 
from like the 50s where like the Mars and Venus of their stories are the fantastically imagined other planets that we know are now completely impossible but it was still those were kind of cool and can we just you know can we can we have that John Carter of Mars version of Mars still and I think that's fun yeah like the the C.S. Lewis there are giant like otter people who live on Mars Right. You know what? Some days I can fall for that. I'm I'm okay with it. Some days you want to believe that there are giant otter <laughs> you people. Do. You know, you want to believe in the giant otter people on Mars. I, I think, think it's your turn to pick a I question, Rowena. All right. So from Ken Reeves, who is Ken Reeves Books on Twitter, do you recommend any exercises to quickly build enough of a story world to start writing? So if you do not need a full spreadsheet before you begin. What are some ways to get there more quickly? I don't know that I think about it in terms of like exercises, because the smart ass answer I was about to give was jumping jacks. <laughs> Always gets me, you know, <laughs> plank, just plank until you feel like writing. Get that energy out before you sit down and start doing stuff. Not so much an exercise, but I think I think the shortcut is starting with your aesthetic, like starting with what are things going to look and feel like? What's the tech level? I feel like that's the the quick and dirty way to do it. That's that's actually usually where I start is is with a vague sense of aesthetic that I then build the world deeper into. Like I'm I am sure if you if you go onto the internets there are worksheets and you know kind of quick writing prompt exercises. I haven't tried any of those personally, so I can't vouch for any of them. But I know that one thing that I usually do to start about any project, um, and it feeds into the world building part of it, is that I've got a few scenes in my head. And I'll just sit down and write them. And so just kind of like being able to capture, you know, Cass was saying the aesthetic of that world. If I can start to do that in a scene or two, I feel like I know I've really got something going that I can I can play with. At that point, it's less about what is what are the precise elements of the world? You know, what are the ins and outs of the technology and the different, you know, biomes and things like that and more about can i capture the essence of what i want to convey about this world in a scene or two yeah which may or may not be helpful i don't know see that's the thing i think the the the, the question itself enough of a story world to start writing is such a loaded question there because for every writer how we define enough is going to be a radically different thing like some of us do need our spreadsheets and need to build the whole sandcastle before or at least enough of a veneer of a sandcastle to get going whereas other people are able to just be like okay i've got you know i've got an aesthetic in my head and i've got these two characters and i'm just gonna go and see where that world building leads me so enough is such a is such a subjective part of this question of enough for who because enough for you is going to be different than enough for me the point at which i actually start writing something it's been like marinating in my head for a while and i have no good way to quantify that like yeah i've been sitting with this idea for months or whatever before i actually start to write it usually because i'm busy doing other crap but you can always be thinking right so it's like that becomes my like marinate on it while i'm unloading the dishwasher or commuting or whatever so i've been thinking about it and toying with stuff but I haven't been writing anything down or doing anything necessarily solid. So it's really hard to quantify that. Right. That that amount of marination and how much then you know about the world is, can also be radically different from what you've like prepared in a thing that you could hand to another person and be like, now you can understand what, what's going on in my world. Because 
it, it is always a challenge to me to, to frame whatever world as much as I do to frame it in a way that would necessarily make sense to another person or be in this sort of written down codified way. I'm going to suggest something else for for sort of a quick and dirty way to get a world going is to look at role playing games, because any kind of um, dungeon master or game master's guide where you have to create worlds is likely to have some kind of table in it. That is like, you know, if you just need a location, like, okay, roll a d20. One through four, it's a desert location. Five through eight, it's C. Not, you know, whatever and so forth. And you can probably find charts and things like that. Like if you just want to literally roll up a world, like, all right, this is a forest environment with 30% water, population X, tech level Y. Like I bet there are lots of things you can use to quickly generate a setting using some of the resources that gamers use. Along those lines, maybe a good exercise is just coming up with, like, if you were a DM running the game, what would be your pitch to your to your players of, like, this is what the game's going to be. And if you can come up with that, then then that's at least a foundation you can start with in terms of, can you then start writing with that? I don't know. I probably couldn't, but some, some of y'all can. <laughs> well, and especially if, you know, because world building is not every writer's thing. And I think, you know, we all respect that. We, we tease, but we respect that. And if what you have is a story and, a, you know, characters, and it's about an emotional arc between two people that maybe really could take place everywhere, I think that that is a fantastic idea for just kind of like get over that hump and start writing and, and play with it and see what happens. And maybe you'll end up changing some of the world building later. Maybe that's something that happens in kind of like post-production for you. And that's cool too. All right, Cass, do you have your eye on another question? Oh, gosh, it is my turn again, isn't it? Um, okay, yes. I, I like this one because I I think we probably all have some fun answers for it. From Mike Headley, Twitter bowtie writer, what's been the biggest mistake you've made while world building? And they both just made these faces where they're clasping their fists to their mouths. <laughs> <laughs> for me, I think the big thing like stems from the fact that the world that Meridane is based on like, I started in the 90s, and we, like, in terms of, like, the fantasy literature world has evolved so much of, like, what you should be doing with your fantasy worlds from there. So I think there's a lot of, like, root stuff that now I look at, I'm like, hmm, I need to, like, I'm not going to point up any one specific thing, but there is a lot of stuff where I'm like, hmm... There, there's a lot of presumptions that I put in there at the beginning that I probably shouldn't have because it was 1993 and I was 20 and stupid. <laughs> and, like, I, I wouldn't necessarily point to any one thing, but I have a lot that over the course of time I would look at a document and be like, hmm, that's something I need either completely scrub or, or rework in, an, in a more interesting way. And so... I guess I would say biggest mistake was starting in the 90s, but... Um, <laughs> but we can't help that. No. But we can't help that. But yeah, I, to get to our sort of core principle, I think the biggest mistake was starting with a lot of presumptions instead of making choices. Yeah, one one that leaps to mind for me is sort of along those lines. And of course, the Oven Cycle isn't a fully invented world. It's a version of our world. So what I actually made was a huge history mistake in book one that I then had to retcon my way around in, in two and three. But even though it's a historical mistake, I, I still want to mention it here because it is, again, a presumption mistake. And it is one of those things where even though I freaking well know the history 
my brain was just so much in a certain mode. And, and what it is, is um, priesthoods in ancient Rome. And the fact that they were not isolated in the way we tend to think of priesthoods in, in a more medieval through, you know, almost up to modern times context. Um, the world was not divided as it was in, in the Middle Ages in Europe into those who work, those who fight, those who pray. There was no distinction between those categories. People who were priests, pontifexes, very often had other jobs and they had other things they did. And they were also politicians and they were also, you know, sometimes in the army. And, and you know, Mark Antony was a priest of the Lupercal. It was blended together more. And I mostly actually got that right. But what I fucked up royally was leaving a presumption that people lived in or at temple complexes, which they did not do. Not even slightly. If you look at the fucking floor plan of a Roman temple, it's like, there's no apartments there. There's no place for people to live. It is the God's house. And it's like, it was just a thing that I just utterly cocked up in, in From Unseen Fire and didn't catch, even though I know that, I know that history, but I feel like that idea of like, priests, priesthoods as being separate from society in a certain way is just so imbued in, in historical and fantasy fiction that it just crept in. And I had to fix it. I had to make some references in, in Giveaway Tonight and in upcoming book three about, oh, no, they lived in the apartments near the temple. That sort of <laughs> fixes it. That sort of makes it better. That's closer to accurate. <laughs> but it was, it was very much just like, one of those, oh, everyone knows this presumptions in my head got in my own way and I messed it up. I'm trying to think, I, I mean, I think I'd be lying if I said that I wouldn't do a lot of things differently just because that's how writer brain works. And you're like, you don't stop revising because you actually feel done, but because someone says you have to turn this in now. I think that one of the things that I, I don't know want to call it a mistake mistake, but there were a lot of things, especially in book one, that were difficult to convey easily, like the differences between ethnicities in the world. And so I think that I would have been a lot clearer on some of those things. One of the things that I, I tried to make um, a point of was that um, people paid a lot of attention to body types so that people who had like were more like broad shouldered like taller build, that was a marker of, one of the ethnicity that my main character was from. And I don't know that that came across particularly well, or that that was something that um, the reader would easily understand that I was kind of trying to say, like, people looked at different things other than what we Americans look at, which is predominantly skin color and language. Like, that's kind of how we delineate how we understand where someone's from and, and what their background is. Um, and I'm painting with a very broad brush. And I think in trying to do something different, I made it perhaps too difficult to understand and did a disservice to the experience of actual marginalized people who are like, I don't necessarily see how this works. You know what I mean? So I think that not necessarily not doing that, but thinking of better ways of conveying it would be a lesson learned for next time. Yeah. I mean, that is a craft thing that I'm always trying to improve is how am I conveying this and, and am I doing it in a considerate and thoughtful way each time? that is both clear to the reader, but also considerate of the reader. Right. And, and that, you know, our readers don't spend all the times in our heads, thank God, because it's weird in there, um, <laughs> that we do. 
So again, we talk about the on-ramping, we talk about how do you explain this and how do you convey it. And, and I think setting myself up, expecting to have to do that from the beginning with some of the choices that I made, you know, that, that balance point of not presuming is when you're choosing, choosing with kind of your expectations and plan built in of how are you going to write about this and how is it going to come through on the page? So he was thinking, I was going to bounce the question just a little further too, to think about, have there been times when you've like world built yourself into a corner? Like not necessarily a mistake mistake, but finding yourself like, oh, here's a plot element I would like to introduce, but dang, it completely does not fit with the way I have constructed the world. Because <laughs> that's actually part of the problem I've been having in, in the thing I'm trying to draft right now is I keep making interesting world building decisions especially with to do with economics in particular in this case, that then are not folding in correctly with like character motivations and what I want those to be. And so the, the tangle I'm in right now is trying to figure out how to achieve balance between those things. How do I shift either the character motivations to fit the world they actually live in or how do I want to shift my world building? And if I pull one card out of that stack, what else falls over? And, and it's, it's an interesting sort of net I've tangled myself into. <laughs> Oh, I love that question, though, because I think that one of the things that falls apart for me so quickly if I'm reading something is if the characters' motivations and their expectations and what they want just don't fit with how their world is set up. Like, why would you want that? Why would you expect that? Why would you believe that about, you know, the world that you live in? And unless there's some change point or revelation that, like, explains why that works, you're right, you fall out of a world so quickly. At least I do. I follow up story very quickly if that doesn't mesh well. Yeah. I, I had a number of moments like that when I was writing Velocity. And I mean, part of that, I think, was because that more than ever had been the case with the, with any of the Meridane books is I was still actively making world building choices along the whole process of writing it. So, like, I came to a point near the end, you know, spoilers, where I wanted a villain character to have basically a weapon that I'm like, well, this is should be a sort of magical weapon, but I haven't established how that could even work. And then I'm like, well, I sort of have, so I just have to cheat just a little to then use the way, like, that the mushroom magic works in a way that I can then do this other thing. And, and actually the freedom I had of, well, I haven't established what this stuff is, I'm being really vague to not be spoilery, <laughs> then allows me to then be like, oh, so it could work that way since I didn't establish that and, and play with that idea. That may have the record okay. for most relative pronouns in a single <laughs> paragraph without deliberate antecedents. <laughs> that with the that, with the which, with the what. <laughs> I mean, I followed you, but I've read the book. <laughs> you probably did with like, I know exactly what he's talking about. <laughs> Everyone else should read the books that they also know. Yeah, if yes. if you read Velocity Revolution, you, you will then too. be able to understand <laughs> the previous sentence. <laughs> Is it on me? Is it my question it's now? All you. I'm going to go with the other question from Mike Headley, the Bowtie Writer. Which is, are hot dogs sandwiches or tacos? Which is a beautiful question for so many reasons, but I'm going to take it from a world-building point of view. Of like, can you have sandwiches be sandwiches in your world when you don't have an Earl of Sandwich? And that's a thing that always plagues me. But also, like, the concept of sandwich or tacos or hot dogs or all that are all so really culturally specific that how do you include that in, in a way that feels 
organic to whatever world you're making. Something that is, say, an open face thing like a hot dog. And what do you do? Do you call that a sandwich? Do you call that what what do you even call that in your world necessarily especially if it is something specific and if you then dive deeper into like regional specificities like the things that i might call a sub but somebody else would call a grinder and somebody else would call a hoagie within 10 miles of each other like what is what is the distinction between these things and then does one city have their cheesesteak and then the next city over has their chopped cheese and if you call a chopped cheese it's sort of like a cheesesteak will somebody start a fight with you <laughs> and this is the sort of thing that i think is really fun to do with food in your world building especially in terms of just you know what is a hot dog and how does how do the people in your world define it and the answer to mike's question specifically is yes <laughs> see I, I think that the problem is that both sandwich and hot dog clearly along with hamburger fall under the category of that we have not named and we require a name in our world which is filling of some kind in some sort of starchy, usually risen, but not always bread product, right? Like we don't have a name for that, like overarching, we could make up a name if we wanted, that could be a thing that we could do. The Florg Flip. The Florg Flip includes all starchy, like bread encasing, usually meat, but not always filled items. Like if I were to say a pie, and then I were to say, like, so is a chicken pot pie actually a pie? Like, we wouldn't have this argument, right? Because you'd be like, I know what a pie is. It's a pie. It's you bake with this crust and the thing. And we could start to break out and it's like, so is a four for variety a pie? Yes, because it's still got the filling, even though it's a hand pie. Is an empanada a pie? Yes, because it still has the filling in the pastry. And that's what it is. Is a ravioli right? a pie? But we don't have... Is a what? <laughs> is ravioli a pie? <laughs> no, ravioli is a dumpling. Ah. Is a dumpling it's a, a pie? Ha- What's the difference between a dumpling and a pie? What is the difference du- between no, a dumpling have, and a sandwich? What I've, is the difference between a I've pie thought, and a sandwich? I thought this way too much. So a dumpling. No, I'm with you. <laughs> in some way, it is boiled or perhaps pan fried, whereas a pie has been baked and includes it's a pastry rather than anyway. Um, but yes, but the problem with the whole sandwich hot dog thing is we don't have the overarching category that we do for other other things in our in our own world. So. If you want to avoid your characters arguing over whether a hot dog is a sandwich, you have to consider the overarching categories that they are that they are experiencing the world within. I'm I'm now just picturing like conveying that information <laughs> as per the opening scene of Romeo and Juliet, which <laughs> is is filled with if you ever see an uncut version, filled with impenetrable references to colliers and things and it like it i don't not sure it was funny in 1595 it sure as heck not funny now it's why most productions cut it but it is a window into their world and the things that they care about and so you could like open a story with two people arguing about what qualifies as a florg flip it's like oh no that's not a florg flip because you have to bake it after it's done whereas a florg flip is clearly things that are already extant and you just assemble it you don't there's no you know this you could have characters arguing about that to convey that information you could and it would show you their quarrelous nature and then they get in a fight. I don't know, whatever. I will maintain as well that the most important like element of every culture's food should be should be slop. Like what is what is the slop of your people? Is it stew? Is it curry? Is it is it lentils? Is it what what is it? What is what is the slop of your people? What is the thing that poor people will add more water to to keep it going an extra <laughs> yes. day? Right. No, like what's that basic unit? <laughs> 
And I love slop. Like it doesn't matter what, like where the slop comes from. I love the slop. If I ever wrote a cookbook, it would be called slop because... I think you should do that. I think that would be a huge seller. (laughs) I mean, to go back to a simple exercise, every every culture needs a slop, it needs a floor flip, and it needs a drink. There you go. And maybe if you can answer those questions, that answers that how much world building do you need before you can write a story. You can at least write one in a tavern if you've got your floor flip, your slop, and your drink. This is why y'all make me so happy. <laughs> delightful. I mean, this that right there, that's that's what this podcast is all about, in a nutshell. It's the essence. The essence of this podcast that's, right there. That's it. <laughs> all right. I'm going to go with um, one from John Zelisnik. He says, I don't remember if you've covered the literature of a world. You talked about the play within a play. And I'm wondering, how does one include this aspect of a world in their work? And I feel like, you know, we've danced around literature in a few different ways. We've talked about the highbrow and the lowbrow. We've talked about performance. We've talked about a lot of stuff. I don't know if we've actually hit up, like, the the written work as a as a full topic for something that we've done. Yeah, we've talked a about question. it a little with, um, with C.L. Clark in that episode mm-hmm. and with Marie and Alice and even in my first episode back in mm-hmm. back in season one we sort of it's been part of other conversations but we haven't specifically done a deep dive on literature itself and just starting with that I mean freaking what is literature what does that mean does it have to be a printed body of work or can it be the oral traditions it it just defining that starts, you know, my my English major alarms start going off like, ah, but what do we mean by literature? Well, and I think it plays into that question of the highbrow and the lowbrow that we've played with a lot, too, of like, what do we do? We have a separate literature from like the pulp that a a culture enjoys and trades in and, and reads um, is another good question to play with, I think. Just also, are the people in your world reading and what are they reading and how do you, it's, I think it's also more of a question of how do you express that in a way that then doesn't feel like it's the snake eating its own tail within, within what you're doing. Like, can you, can you have like a scene where you have like your, your half drunk college kids basically like goodwill hunting where he's like yeah you got that from that and you know you should be reading this and then in two years you're gonna like can you do that without it just being too opaque for your readers because you have your character just making references that nobody none of your readers are gonna get like because you're never gonna be able to give like here is an education on on the canon of literature within my world that's never gonna work but at the same time Unless you're like really doing, I mean, it's supposed to be, I'm just riffing now, but it would be fun to like, if you're doing a fantasy book that is just about like the literary world within your world and like your main characters are a bunch of struggling authors, that could be kind of fun. And, and, but also like, I'm actually shocked nobody's done that. (laughs) Only other writers would read that. (laughs) Only other writers would read that. Like that's your, that's totally your target audience. But at the same time, I think that can be like a fascinating way in. But yeah, because I think that the big question, right, is how are your characters engaging with and encountering whatever the literature of your world is, whether it's written, whether it's performed, whether it's oral, whether it's something magical that I haven't even thought of yet. And I think that's where you start to play with where your entry is, right? That it's like, okay, so are they, is this the kind of culture where people 
read a book every month and go to book club? Or is this the kind of culture where it's normal to gather around the stove every night and grandpa tells a story? Or, you know, what what kind of ways do you have into storytelling and literature? And and is there a canon that people engage with or is there not? And And once you kind of can answer that, I think that that's where you can start to play with where is it normal to introduce those things? So do you follow the character to book club? Or do you sit with them as they're telling a bedtime story to their children? Or do you have them, you know, perusing an archive, trying to find something to read for some reason? If your main character is a librarian, you can get away with all kinds of stuff. But you can do anything you want. <laughs> but I was also thinking, like, you, you can show the difference in kinds of literature and how they're accepted in, in some sort of subtle character ways. Like, okay, one character walks into a room where another character is reading and interrupts what they're reading. How does the reading character respond? Is this some penny dreadful that they, you know, shove beneath their skirts or beneath the couch cushion so they don't get caught with it? Or are they annoyed at being interrupted because it's some dense text that they have to really focus on? Or is it something that they can, you know, just sort of gently close and be like, okay, what do you want? Character reaction um, and, and interaction, as always, is a great way to show the cultural value of the objects that you are building into the world. One of the things I was playing with in um I'm I'm playing with a thing set in the 30s and um obviously at this point like the the concept of a bestseller is established by the 1930s like we we have the books that everyone goes out and buys and reads and so I had this a couple scenes where the character kept coming back to Gone with the Wind because her friend said oh you have to read it it's the best thing ever and she keeps like picking it up and like making it to like page 15 and like putting it down and then like trying again in a week and like making it to page 16 this time and like putting it down because she's like, I just, I don't get it. I'm not enjoying this at all. But just the idea of like engaging with a larger community around you who's all reading the same thing, or at least it feels like everyone's reading the same thing. So whether you have that, and then I changed the year that I'm setting this in and Gone with the Wind wasn't published yet. So I don't know, we'll have to do Grapes of Wrath or something instead. Great Gatsby. That could work. Because that was that book when it came out. It was the mm-hmm. like, you know... So there you go. Yeah, I like I very explicitly made Maridane a very literate society so I could play with all those different levels and have like I have a bit in Lady Henderman's wardrobe where, you know, in the initial we've got to break into this building. So they're in is there's a guard who spends his dinner break every day going to this one pub every day and he reads a book while there so helene reads just enough of the book to be able to then be like oh you're reading that too and have an intelligent conversation with him to distract him i love playing with that sort of thing but i mean obviously you want to show that literature exists and yeah i'd love to play more with like the literary world within a world maybe a one of my backup works in progress that I've got on the back burner right now is going to delve into that sort of thing a bit more. It's definitely going to delve into an arts community more than more than anything else. But but that's that's the back burner project right now. And, and we'll talk more about that when it's more of a thing. All right. So let's for our next one, let's look at from Christopher, who is KD8QDZ on Twitter. This is an interesting scientific question and and starts to pull apart threads about, you know, technology level and things like that. If I had an iron poor world, what things from the Industrial Revolution wouldn't work with bronze as a substitute? I'm not great at metallurgy, but my instinct is a lot of things because I don't think that bronze can sort of like bear the the impact that, that iron can, but 
I could be wrong. I'm not certain. Well, and, it, and, it's, and it's past iron, too, because we really start to get really bonkers when we start doing a lot with steel. Like, you, you move even past the whole iron thing and into, like, and where do you go from there if you're working with bronze? Like, I'm not sure at what point you hit a, you can't get there from their limit with different metals. I feel like my answer would be to, like, make up a new metal that, when blended into bronze, gives it some of the qualities of steel, makes it both harder and lighter, which allows you to do a lot of the Industrial Revolution things. I would totally magic that shit if I wanted to. Yeah. It'd be like, oh, but we have to, you know, incorporate the, the magical element of this into these metals. But I mean, at the heart of the question, I think that there 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 is a, a good point to be made of, you know, if you want to change one small thing in your world and say, I'm going to make certain metals less available, or I'm going to make this environment look a little bit different. I'm going to cover only 20% of the world with ocean instead of what I mean, it doesn't matter what little tweak you make, it's going to have repercussions all the way down. So think about how you want to play those. And if your single play in a world is iron's not a thing. So what are we going to use instead? Like you could build out probably a very unique and creative world with just that one tweak. Yeah. In the spirit of the questions asked, I think like, oh, I would make a magic. If you make a magic thing that cheats around, I think that is the sort of thing I would do, but I think that also is sort of like not what the question is asking. Um, yes. <laughs> no, I was being a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> like, what would I do? This is what I would do. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do it. I, I mean, really like, I <laughs> but I love would the question. It's a good question. Do that. But I, I mean, I certainly think there is a lot of like, in, at least in terms of metal work, without iron as that stepping stone, there is a lot of places you just don't end up being able to go. And it's hard, it's one of those things that's really hard to game out because, because it is a thing of if you remove that, that element, what can happen? Because most of our real world examples where, you know, either metalworking just really wasn't developed or they had iron and developed it. They had bronze and then iron and then developed it. I think you could do some interesting things with other like just soft light metals and then what that gives you instead of iron but certainly the industrial revolution would just wouldn't play out the same way you you wouldn't you would just have to create a different way for that to work and like i would then be playing with okay without iron what are the neat things you could do with say tin and aluminum and rather than try and replicate what the industrial revolution does give you i would say play with what your new setup gives you instead. Yeah, I feel like you would get a lot of, of things dependent on the lightness of metal, but not as many things dependent on the sturdiness of it, because iron and steel are, are so strong. I, I love this question because it makes me think, when I think, you know, an iron poor world, I am thinking of fairies. I am thinking of what if I wanted to industrialize a fey society and they can't touch iron. So like they have to have an iron poor environment. And so what? What would that look like? What would that be? And yeah, I mean, I think tin and aluminum are are some of your go-tos. The other problem is that like so many metals that are useful to us could be more common in your world than they are in ours, but are often more difficult to mine. Like that's the reason that aluminum doesn't take off, you know, centuries and centuries before it does is because it is difficult to mine. And so you start getting into like, okay, do I need one kind of thing to access the other kind of thing (laughs) or... Where am I? Where am I tangling myself up? Like the idea that's jumping in my head: if you have an iron poor world, that but you do have 
bronze unless you have copper you have tin you have and you have aluminum and all that is instead of an industrial revolution it feels like it would be more of an electrical revolution yeah yeah you would do more with electricity you would do more with radio you would do more with with those sorts of things and then maybe also more things with with say balloons and zeppelins rather than rather than trains yeah, because one thing that I'm thinking of, and I would have to look this up, but one of the major elements of the Industrial Revolution isn't just the use of strong materials, but the fact that you can power steam engines using these things. They, they, they will stand up to the rigors of being heated and and damp as well. And like my guess is you cannot make um, parts for a steam engine out of tin because it will rust away before you say go. So, you know, the, how are you... I was going to say they would melt <laughs> under the heat of the steam engine. <laughs> yeah. Like, how are you powering your world? Yeah, I don't think you can do it with steam if you're not going to work with iron or other metals that that are going to play nicely with very hot and and damp. I don't like that word, but it's the only thing I'm coming up with. Um, Moist. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Marshall. Yeah. That's Moist. better. Yeah, that's better. So yeah, your hot, moist steam engine requirements <laughs> may be too much for some of your metals, just as they are for my ears. <laughs> so yeah, what are you doing instead? Are you getting into electricity before historically we got into it? Are you getting into weird stuff with magnets? I don't know. I mean, like... magnets are, that's iron-based too, though, isn't it? Someone yeah. someone remind me fifth grade um, science. That's like, right, yeah. You yeah. couldn't really do magnets without iron, so... You couldn't have maglev trains that were made of aluminum because you'd have to have something else. Unless, unless you have just enough that all you do with it is like the one, the one thing, you know, if it's poor, but there's just enough that you like do the one. And of course it was, it was magic up until they figured out how it worked. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So we have to, we have to mine the magical element to do the magical thing with it. But that, again, that is just a fun thing to, to work out what the consequences are going to be. I'm reminded, this is a deep cut, there was a show in the 90s called Sliders, um, where they were, like, went to parallel Earths. And there was one episode where they went to an Earth that basically did not have aluminum. And as a result, in, like, 1990 there, that means, like, industrial planes were never really developed because they didn't have, they didn't have the metals to be able to make good lighter than air crafts the you know the the size that to like do industrial plane travel or or make planes for world war ii or whatever so everything was still boats and and steamership not steamership but like but like heavy ocean traffic was a big big thing in this world because they didn't have planes at the same level that we do now cass you look like you're holding something in (laughs) i had a funny thought which was, what if it was iron poor, but rubber rich, and everything is just bouncy oh. castles? <laughs> it's the end of the year, y'all. It's the end of the year. <laughs> but that, I mean, yeah. Do you have something else like rubber or some other material that is, you know, found naturally or otherwise that can be a major component of whatever drives Whatever drives I mean, that revolution, it doesn't have to be an industrial revolution. It can be something else because of some other substance that can, gets brought to the next level. I was going to say, and you can then begin to dig into all the questions of what happens if you don't have rubber in a world. Because there's all kinds of modern shit that we wouldn't have if you didn't have rubber. Yeah. 
you know, you, you get rid of, you get rid of the aluminum to get rid of the planes. You get rid of the rubber and get rid of the planes too. You know, it's yeah. like these, these little things, but, but I think that the, I think that the key is to look at it, not as a limiting factor on the people of your world. It's a limiting factor on you and building the world, but it's not a limiting factor on them. They can still create some pretty bonkers stuff. And so, you know, instead of thinking, well, what would they be held back to? What would they do instead? I think becomes your question. And that's a much more fun question than keeping them all in the Bronze Age because they didn't have, you know, iron to, to do something else with. Because they're never going to go, man, if only we had iron. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, they never thought of it. Though I just visualize instead of steam engines, just but ha- having no iron, but having rubber and giant steam, instead of steam engines, you just have giant slingshots. <laughs> giant whoopee cushions you just like that'd be fun i like it and we have one last question which is a pretty big meta question i think in terms of do you start with story and build enough world to motivate and contextualize it or you craft a world and see what's born from it i mean this is this is like every writer's like they they have to figure out what sort of writer they are and sometimes it is a journey to figure out which one you are because i think there are some people who think who just just build and build and build and never find the story. And I think there's some people who try to start writing without doing the building and find themselves hitting the wall. And you have to figure out who you are before you can get going. I think. Now, personally, we've said this before. I love. I need to build the sandcastles before I put put people in it. But. Every, every, every person has a different method and there's not a, there's not a right or wrong answer. There's just a, what's your right answer for me. Yeah, I know for me personally, my answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> do I, do I build the world first or the story first? And yes, <laughs> I'm doing them very much simultaneously. That's kind of happening in interplay with, with the two kind of playing off of each other. Um, and I will fully admit it may not be the most efficient way to write. Um, but I like that element of discovery that kind of goes with it, that I get to to toggle back and forth between those two different elements of creativity within writing and drafting. And also that I can let elements of the world building inspire the story and I can let elements of the story inspire the world building and kind of just get to play a little bit before before tying yourself down with all the things that you know you actually publish and then you have to stick with it. Yeah. With the case with Meridane, I did all the world building a lot of the world building first and then found the stories within it. But for example, that backburner work in progress I was talking about earlier there, it was a case of, I wanted to do a story that was about an arts community and art that was political. And that was the initial things I was thinking of and then started to build the world stuff around it being that being the kind of story I wanted to tell. So I mean, every, every, every project is going to be different and every method is going to be different. And it's all about what works for you. Yeah, I would say my process is closer to Rowena's. I, I tend to build character and world sort of at the same time. And then the struggle is always figuring out what the actual plot's going to be. Um, <laughs> cobbling that together out of, real. out of character motivations and things like that. Yeah, they keep telling us we need to have plots. I just, yeah, rude. Why can't I just have this. people wandering around this fantasy world and living their lives there, I, whatever. And so I start with an idea of the world, but not every corner of it is necessarily fleshed out. And what that idea is may be inspired by the aesthetic. It may be inspired by 
something world building wise I really do want to explore, like an unusual economic setup or an unusual political setup, you know, things like that, or an unusual magical system I want to play with. And then I'd figure out how that affects everything else, the politics and the money and everything. And I usually start off with way more characters than actually end up fitting into whatever plot but then i also have to then build more characters for the plot that i end up with so it's a <laughs> it's a self-feeding process it's it's never just one thing at a time for me it's 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 a a, a mass of things all tangling themselves together and yeah it's not efficient um <laughs> that is that is not i think something that i could be accused of <laughs> efficiency in writing but <laughs> <laughs> it's my process and it works for me and it, it, it's what makes me happy when when i try to do it other ways my brain is not happy and I, I don't write well when my brain is unhappy so why would i do that to myself and i will say i don't maybe i maybe this is just optimistic but i do feel like i have gotten more efficient with my inefficiency if that makes sense like it comes together more quickly now for me than it did when i first kind of got serious about writing and started you know toying around with it so there's an element of trust your process, even if it feels like it doesn't, it isn't a process. Like it is, it's there, sort of. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, <laughs> dri- I don't know, like driving a road for the first time, you don't know where all the bends and curves are going to be. Driving it more and more, you start to be able to think like, oh, yeah, that's right. There's there's this curve here. There's this place here where the sun gets in people's eyes and they always slow down. And it's like you sort of learn what to anticipate in your process. And you can't always anticipate everything, but you... you The more we do this, and I think the more we talk about it on this podcast, too, it just sort of makes me more aware of the things I need to be thinking about. So they're less likely to jump up and bite me in the ass later. I see them coming first. (laughs) Right. I mean, certainly doing this and having these wonderful conversations with y'all has helped me put into my head, oh, this is what I'm doing when I'm doing this sort of thing. This is, these are, this is the act of me making these active choices and that's how that works and i i think that's always you know helped me do better and stronger things with each project i've done since then and it's allowed me to just interrogate my process even more and i think that's the big thing is is just don't presume what your process is interrogate it and figure out which things actually make your brain happy and don't presume it's that same, you know, choose versus presume. Don't presume, oh, I'm the sort of writer who does this. And I, I've had people come up to me and be like, well, I'm the sort of writer who has to, like, just, you know, see where, you know, just start writing and see where it goes. And I say, well, have you finished anything using that method? And they say no. And I'll be like, well, then maybe you need to experiment with other methods. And no method is right or wrong, but a lot of times I think people get locked in the idea of what kind of writer I am or how I need to do things that isn't necessarily based on actual results of how they get there. Yeah. Or I mean, like putting on my like English professor hat for a minute, but I mean, a lot of my students will be the same way that they'll say like, Oh, well, no, I don't use outlines or, you know, or I always use an outline and I always structure my courses so that they're like required to produce different kinds of preparatory written written assignments and it's like every semester I have students who are like I never did it that way and it actually works really well for me and I'm like that's right because you have to try different things to know how you actually do this so it's kind of like you know just because you've never tried a world building spreadsheet before doesn't mean that you can't try it and see if it doesn't pan out for you or just because you've never tried just sitting down and flying by the seat of your pants 
give it a shot. And that's, you know, you don't have to do it with a novel either. You can play with short stories. You can play with flash fiction. You can do different stuff to stretch your muscles and see what, see what works, see what feels like maybe it's something that you could play with on a bigger scale if you want to. Yeah, I tell my students the same thing. It's we're going to try a bunch of different tools in this class. And not every tool is going to work for everybody. But give it a whirl. Don't just tell me, oh, no, I don't think I'll like that. Well, try it. If you still don't like it, that's fine. But you may or may not carry these tools forward into your future work. You may find that some tools work for some projects and not for others. But developing them is, is good. And I think it is good for me to remind myself of that, too not just tell it to my students, but actually practice what I preach and make sure I am stepping outside of like familiar boundaries every once in a while and trying new tools and trying new strategies. And at the end of the day, this is supposed to be at least a little bit fun. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I mean, the parts that you enjoy is, is yeah. important. I think working writers forget that sometimes we, we get focused on like, oh, I have to produce things. I, I have to stay relevant. I have to keep making a thing. And it's like, it's okay to have fun with it too. And, and probably you need to in order to create good things. Yes. Things, things that you had fun writing are probably more fun reading. It's just a guess. I haven't done a scientific study on it, but that's, that's my hypothesis and I'm sticking to it. I think that is a good thesis. And perhaps a good place to end our episode. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on February 2nd and we'll be joined again by Elsa Hunison, this time to talk about obscenity and how that can color your worlds. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room if you want to come and chat with us and other friends of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.